Hello, listeners. Welcome to Buried Voices in STEM. My name is M. Stacy, and I am one of the co-hosts for this podcast, along with Dr. Erica Tracy, Rora Dungu, and Charlize Williams. The aim of this podcast is to catalog the diverse journeys of individuals in STEM career paths and capture the perspectives of people with a variety of jobs and experience levels in science, technology, engineering, and math. This project is provided by the Neuroscience Institute Committee on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Georgia State University in Atlanta, under the leadership of Dr. Erica Tracy. We give special thanks to our Center for the Advancement of Students and Alumni at Georgia State and the Maximizing Access to Research Careers Grant from the National Institutes of Health for funding activities related to this podcast. Hi, listeners. Thanks for listening to another episode of Very Voices in STEM. Today, we'll be hearing from Lisa Shepard and Jennifer Gray. Lisa is the Undergraduate Academic Coordinator for GSU's Neuroscience Department, and she will start us off by discussing her experience working at Georgia State, living in Atlanta, and finding community in times of hardship. She'll be highlighting some issues that may be triggering for some, so I want to warn anyone who may be sensitive to content about gun violence, violence against people of color, violence against children, or police brutality. I am a native Atlantan. My undergraduate studies was at Spelman College. I traveled, or I left Georgia for my first job after college, and I moved to Michigan. I was there for a few years, and got relocated to Florida, but eventually worked my way back to Georgia. Ended up at Georgia State kind of on a fluke, I had gotten downsized from my corporate position. And I, at that time, wanted to go get my master's. And I was like, let me see if I can get a job at Georgia State. So my first position was working in the College of Education. I was a part-time staff member. And 20 years later, I'm still here, obviously in a different position. But I really cannot believe that September of 2021 marked my 20 years at GSU. I remember being a native Atlantan, seeing GSU buildings, but now I feel like the GSU campus has expanded. So I can say that I feel like GSU now is more incorporated in the city as the campus has grown. Some changes, you know, GSU got a football team a few years back. So now there's, you know, that aspect of sports, GSU sports, that um, people get excited about both uh, basketball and football. We have some very high profile GSU alumni. One of our graduate alums is now the mayor of the city, (laughs) Andre Dickens. So that's pretty, you know, amazing to see someone running the city that used to be a student here. But yeah, I feel... Georgia State is right in the heart of the city, is a part of the city. Faculty, staff, and students are doing some amazing things, both on and off campus, that get well publicized. So I am, in that respect, very proud to be part of the GSU community. I think for me, in terms of how I feel being integrated into the GSU community, where I work, because you spend so much time of your life at work, I personally have tried to be involved. So I've been on, you know, staff councils, I've been on various committees, I've done volunteer projects throughout the years hosted by Georgia State. So 
I personally have always felt very connected to Georgia State. And I could definitely say that my time in the Neuroscience Institute, being the undergraduate academic coordinator, helped me that way as well in terms of this department felt very like a family to me. And I worked very closely with my then director and we established obviously a professional relationship, but we also established um, a relationship outside where we would talk about things going on at Georgia State and in our community. And that was definitely evident when the George Floyd protests in Atlanta really started to kick off because, you know, he asked me if I was interested in attending one. And I was like, absolutely. So in many different ways, absolutely. Um, I felt connected then, but I felt very connected while at the Neuroscience Institute. The protest for George Floyd, it felt like a wave of protests throughout the country after his murder happened. And once the footage was released and we got to see a human violation. So once the protests started to kick off all over the country, I knew it it was just a matter of time before it would happen in Atlanta. And not only did it happen in Atlanta, it happened right through the campus of Georgia State University as protesters gathered and made their way down Peachtree Street and Marietta Boulevard. There were protests that literally went right by the Neuroscience Institute. So my director and I decided to join one. And we walked down and went down and kind of converged on CNN, where everybody was congregating. So just to have that experience, and I should be transparent and say I am African-American and my director is not. And so just to know that, A, he wanted to do it. I think at that moment, we felt compelled to do something. We just couldn't. It was just an expression of a collective voice and not publicly stating this is not right. And we want the world to know that we know this is not right and we want to take action. So that was just a very small act of just showing solidarity in that moment. It was everything. It was anger at loss of life in the way that it happened by someone that was supposed to be protecting and serving uh, his community. That didn't happen. It was also a feeling of we're still dealing with this. (laughs) But I will say just seeing people of all races, and I will say not only was it college students, we saw, you know, people of all ages, we even saw families bringing their young children to go out and protest. So it was a very strange mix of anger, frustration, but there was also a feeling of people of all races acknowledging that we wanted change. And the numbers of people that showed up let me know that, I mean, and I always have been the kind of person, I'm not gonna let one person uh, skew my perspective on a race of people, but it was just more so, there were people of all races out there that were acknowledging that what happened to George Floyd wasn't right and that they wanted to voice their Uh, anger with that. But I think my feeling of hope was, um, I felt better that it wasn't just all Black people out there, because it wasn't. It was a very diverse 
proud. And at the end of the day, I think there wasn't a debate about what happened being wrong. We all knew what happened was wrong. So we all came together to express that. I think it helped knowing that I had a supportive department. I mean, and I let, you know, my director and even the director of the Institute at that time know that I felt comfortable expressing how I was feeling about what happened. And then feeling as though there may be some students out there that may be traumatized by this as well. And, you know, their well-being and their academic studies may be impacted by this. So, you know, we can't take for granted that this is not something that our students are internalizing. And again, I've been here long enough. I kind of knew the dynamics. And honestly, I, I, I felt like the people in this department, specifically in this Neuroscience Institute, would be supportive. And as a collective, everybody was. So I, I didn't feel like I was expressing myself in an antagonistic or unsupportive environment. So that helped. And I gave a shout out to Dr. Forger, who was director at the time, and my director, Dr. Normandin, who was very supportive. And we shed tears together for just about the state of the world at that point. As of today, we're just maybe a week removed from a mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, that was racially motivated. So I guess I can say I'm speaking, you know, with you today with a bit of a heavy heart. The happenings of mass shootings is something that continues to haunt this country. And I just wonder why this keeps happening, why the perpetrators continue to be young men. I'm like, you're 18. Why aren't you involved in sports or creative things, whatever? Why do you, at such a young age, choose to do something violent that shatters the lives of people because you've chosen to hate them based on their race. I I don't understand. I mean, at 18, I was probably getting ready to go to college, listening to Duran Duran. The thought of planning to carry out a mass murder was the furthest thing from my mind as an 18-year-old. Well, now I think a lot of attention is going to politicians who have not supported gun control laws. Like, For what reason does a citizen need an automatic rifle? For what reason, right? My understanding is he bought the weaponry right when he turned 18. So I think this has, once again, brought more focus on the gun control laws in this country, the politicians who have not supported gun control. I think I think they're definitely being called to the carpet because these mass murders just continue are continuing to happen. And it's just the fact that on top of Buffalo, which we know was a racially motivated incident, then just behind that, now we have this mass killing in Texas at an elementary school. So young, young kids are not able to go to school and come home alive because yet somebody else, young man, was able to secure weaponry and shoot several students and teachers. So it's a lot. But I think a lot of attention now is something has to change and everyone's looking to the politicians to help be a part of that change. Because I think even after Sandy Hook, you know, people have been begging for changes in gun laws and they have not come to pass. So I think with 
these incidents kind of back to back within a span, I think of not even a week or maybe a little over a week between what happened in uh, Buffalo, what happened in Texas. I think people are angry, frustrated, and looking for change. Working at Georgia State in the office that I do, there are procedures and protocols in place. If there's been any sort of threat or perceived threat, we are always made aware of that. And in, in our office, you know, they'll let us know that we may have increased police presence if we are made aware of such an incident. I try not to live my life in fear, but I also know that if somebody wants to get you, they can. <laughs> so I don't know if I answered it, but even though like I'm in a secure area, if somebody is walking up <laughs> to my floor with an automatic rifle and is trying to take everybody out to get to me, then it's just going to be what it's going to be. I mean, because these people were living their lives, doing their routine jobs, right? They, I'm sure they went to work not thinking that they would make it back home that same day. Now, my building is not where you kind of have to sign people in. Mm-mm, it's easier access where I am now. So I definitely felt safe here because of that additional layer of protection. But yeah, as a Black woman in Atlanta, I feel fine. <laughs> as a Black woman in Georgia, mm-mm. There are certain places I'm not going outside, too far outside the Atlanta city limits. Mm-mm. And I say that all the time. There's a difference. There's Atlanta and there's Georgia. Two separate things. Atlanta, I'm good. Growing up here, grew up middle class. My parents were both edu- you know, college educated. I grew up around very successful Black, black people. I grew up with uh, Black Mayor Maynard Jackson. I saw success everywhere. So, and I will say in some ways Atlanta messed me up because not every place is like Atlanta. You know what I mean? Um, I think there's just a level of black excellence, especially if you're middle class or above, that is expected of you. Um, but not every place is like that. So I do think Atlanta is special in that way. But I also, as I grew older, learned that not every other major city has a significant Black middle class, Black educated, people making, you know, very good salaries and doing well for themselves in various industries and fields. So I did leave Atlanta, as I mentioned before, in my 20s to go work. But I also knew that I wanted to settle back here permanently because it was different living in, you know, Michigan and it was different living in Florida. I, I didn't have that nucleus of Black well-off community that I was a part of. And I had that here. So I literally have people that still, you know, are living in Atlanta. And again, many have moved away. Some haven't. Now I don't advocate for that. I do believe you need to go out and see the world. If you know the world should not be limited to just Atlanta for you. But like I said, I did leave and come back. But I mean, my community extends from people I've known from kindergarten through every phase of life, you know, elementary, middle, high school, college, my sorority, the whole thing. So when I go to a Falcons game, I'm going to see people from some area of my life, whether it's, you know, very recent or 50 plus years ago. You know what I mean? So there's a comfort in that. I disconnect. I mean, I do believe it's important to be informed. But I also believe it's important to protect what it is that you intake, meaning whether it's 
the news cycle or whatever it is. Sometimes I just either shut it all off because I know as soon as I open my phone, I can catch up on whatever the news is. And I honestly, I really did limit, you know, once the initial news broke about these recent mass shootings, I did limit my intake of the news cycle because I just didn't want to hear this over and over and over. I was too sad because whenever these things happen, you know, as the news starts to flow in about the people that were victimized, you get a sense of how many children and family members they had. And it just kind of, for me, exacerbates the loss because people are losing wives, husbands, mothers, fathers, all of that. And so, so even though I wanted to be informed, I didn't want to be enveloped by what happened. So I will say I disconnect and other times I read or I just try to take my mind somewhere else so that I can not just be focused on something that's so heavy and so negative. I think you have to acknowledge, you know, the pain that some may be going through because of these experiences. I mean, the pandemic, through no fault of their own, for some took away milestone events, whether it's prom or even graduation. Some people were not able to physically graduate with their class. They were able to see their friends senior year. So I think it is important to acknowledge the losses that they experienced through no fault of their own. I mean, I would talk about self-care, but I think that I would eventually circle around to not letting these obstacles prevent them from pursuing whatever their dreams are. Especially for some young people, many felt disconnected. They felt disconnected from their friends. They weren't able to physically do things that students of their age typically do, hang out, you know, on campus, go to parties and all that kind of stuff. So you do have to acknowledge it. But ultimately, I wouldn't want them to let, you know, what happened from 2020 to 2022 stop them from their ultimate goals. I wouldn't want it to stop them from graduating or delay any of their life plans, whatever they may have had. I would still encourage them to go forth and and reclaim their lives as we continue to open up from the pandemic. Talking about opening up, I had my very first childhood friend. Her name is Sharon Guest. She got married last weekend in Jamaica. First marriage. 52 years old. She has an adult daughter, all that good stuff. So seeing her kind of step into that new chapter in her life and being able to witness that, that brought me joy. I was very happy for her and her new husband. But outside of that, I just try to find joy every day that I wake up, even if it's something small, just because I don't necessarily think that life is about the big moments. You know what I mean? I really think life is about just kind of the regular moments that you make special and then try to find joy in that. As everybody know, I'm a Falcons fan. Now, I won't say they bring me joy because they they lose a lot, (laughs) but I will say an escape is crazy. I'm a, yeah, it's the Falcons, but the community around the Falcons, like I'm in a million Falcons groups. People go live almost every day. So engaging with them. And again, it's an escape. I mean, we are fanatics. Like we spend a lot of time talking about the Falcons. So 
Yeah, I, I can for sure say I, I probably spend two hours or more daily listening to somebody's live, what's going on with the team, the new draft picks. And I do think it's important to find pockets of joy, whatever that looks like for yourself. So for me, sports, the Falcons specifically are, you know, is something that I allow myself to escape to. And people who are not sports fans don't understand whatsoever. Like, how can you spend so much time, energy and money into something that you just are a spectator of? And I'm just like, you just don't get it in sports. So my dad, he was from New Jersey and got a football scholarship to a local college here. And the love of football, specifically the love for the Falcons, is something that my dad passed down to me. So that's where I got it from. That was Lisa Shepard. Up next, we have Jennifer Gray. Jennifer is pursuing her PhD in neuroscience at GSU, and she will contribute to the discussion Lisa opened by discussing her own experience of the environment of GSU as she works and learns there, how she has found community at GSU, and how the initial COVID school year impacted her. She will also introduce themes of family influence and personal connections to work in neuroscience. I've always wanted to do something involving neuroscience. I've always been super passionate about learning about the brain. My mom has her master's in psychology and special education. And both my brother and dad have schizoaffective disorder. And so I've always been, you know, very well educated on abnormal psychology and mental illness and addiction, those kinds of things. And so even in high school, I was always studying that kind of content on my own. And when I first went to college, I thought I wanted to go more of like the neurology route. Um, And I wanted to be a PA. And I ended up actually working in a hospital and on an ambulance as an EMT. (laughs) And I realized, hmm. I actually really like the research and science aspect of this and not so much the medicine aspect. So I would say like, you know, the end of my sophomore year, I started really diving more into doing research um, with guys on my campus and at certain universities. Um, And I just kind of, from there, knew I wanted to go and pursue my PhD. Having not only, you know, my mom, who is a single mom, and her influence on me was obviously huge. Her coming in with also a research background, um, having her master's degree in special education and psychology, I very much always viewed mental illness, addiction, that kind of thing as an illness, of course. And Back in the day, a lot of people didn't share the same sentiment. (laughs) So that was very, very influential. And then, of course, firsthand, having to deal with not only my parent, my dad, but my brother, who, you know, we're only 13 months apart. He's like my best friend. Having to, my whole life, deal with family members having severe mental illness really shaped me into becoming a very not only passionate neuroscientist now, but a very, I would like to think empathetic and understanding neuroscientist. So I really, I understand that a lot of these behaviors and these issues that people struggle with, of course, come from a biological perspective. So the first time I saw Georgia State and Atlanta actually was in 2017 
I was here, I, it was during the last year of my undergrad, and I was going to a conference, the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. And I just kind of happenstance had a few free hours. I was near Georgia State and I started walking around and I immediately fell in love with the energy, the people, you know, it was the end of the semester and there were lots of undergrads just walking around. There were, you know, some community things happening at the student center. And I remember just being like, okay, I love this place. (laughs) Yeah, so I did my undergrad at St. Edwards University, which is a smaller private school with a kind of closed off campus. So Georgia State's obviously very different. It's like that inner city feel, and I absolutely loved it. And yeah, I ended up coming here for grad school. I do feel like Georgia State is an extremely welcoming community. I do. And I feel like Everyone here, the faculty, the students, especially within the NI, are extremely welcoming, supportive, and create a supportive environment for their students. And I have great communication and relationships with both the director of graduate studies, Anne Murphy, and also the director of the NI, Dan Cox. Um, They've been amazing and are truly advocates for the students in this program. So I feel very lucky in that way. But of course, I feel like belonging anywhere is a bit of a process. So when I first came here, I felt very lost, kind of thrown into this new experience. I had no idea what I was doing. And frankly, I went from feeling like a big fish in a small pond to a medium fish in a huge pond. So It took a lot of adjustment. I'm sure that most PhD students can relate. My lab itself, I work with Dr. Nancy Forger. She has been just incredible in, you know, communicating with me, making sure she knows how I'm doing both professionally and personally. And I felt really supported and loved in my home lab. So that really helped with the transition of feeling kind of supported by the department as a whole. I 100% struggle with imposter syndrome, even right now, even today. I'm going into my fourth year of my PhD, and I still sometimes struggle with feeling like I'm a real scientist or my work is cool enough or impactful enough. And yeah, I definitely came from a background where I truly didn't even imagine doing what I'm doing today. Like uh, there were some years where I just, you know, I wanted to make it through the seventh grade. I, I couldn't even imagine anything further than that, even just making it through the week. So yeah, I feel like I still struggle with imposter syndrome and I still have days where I just feel extremely burnt out, extremely tired. Of course, everyone deals with personal issues along with their professional work. And sometimes that can take a toll. And I've definitely felt that. I had some family stuff happen recently and it was incredibly impactful. And I did consider, um, honestly, quitting. And I think that's really important to talk about as a PhD student. I've 
talked to so many of my peers and those thoughts really go through our heads and we're all dealing with it, but no one talks about it because they're embarrassed or they don't want to utter the words, I want to leave or I can't do this or I need a break. And you feel embarrassed, you feel weak, you feel less than if you actually say those things. And that's why we need to talk about it because everyone deals with this. So currently I'm I feel like I'm getting a bit of my mojo back, but you know, there are ups and downs, even you know, well into your PhD. So I feel like that's important to acknowledge. I think that helping other people with their projects or just reading papers sometimes, taking a step back from the nitty-gritty of my project and going over the whole picture, getting back to why I'm actually doing this experiment really helps. And some days I need to just take a personal day and I need to watch Netflix and take a long nap and (laughs) make some tea and, you know, start again tomorrow. Like during graduate school, it's a really interesting time of your life because you have flexibility in your schedule, but you also, with that comes possibly a loss of boundaries. Like maybe you only work for two hours on Wednesday and then you work for 14 hours on Saturday. So I think creating boundaries for myself, especially as I've progressed in this program and taking time to, you know, do the things that I love. Like I love yoga. I like playing Frisbee with my friends and my boyfriend and I like going on hikes on the weekend. So doing those things for me and prioritizing myself has really helped with just feelings of anxiety and feeling like burnt out. I think that the biggest lesson I've learned and what I've discovered about myself is that I am extremely resilient. So I've gone through multiple issues outside of graduate school during graduate school. And it's definitely taken a toll. And I'm really proud of myself for my ability to keep working and not let it impact my work too, too much. And obviously, like we were talking about, to not quit, which, you know, if that's your journey, that's completely fine. But I constantly surprise myself with my resilience. So that's been really awesome. (laughs) That is awesome. I have a couple of favorite moments being a scientist. I think my first oral presentation at a conference in undergrad, that is one of my favorite memories of really feeling like I was a scientist, like I had something to offer the community. Subsequently, it was also extremely scary because it was the first time I had really given a huge talk in front of colleagues in that way. So I was very scared. But after I was done, I was elated and I felt amazing. I felt so cool. So love that. And then weirdly, one of my favorite memories of being a scientist is in the Forger lab, we study development and we work with mice. Particularly, we look at birth and we look at like right at the time of birth for some of these projects. And we have to pull these overnights where we work overnight in the lab. It's pretty grueling, but weirdly enough, 
I think one of my favorite memories was doing an overnight with an older PhD student who was in the lab when I was first year and one of my friends who was the lab tech at the time. And it was almost like a science slumber party. And it was so fun. And we were just like goofing around the whole night and just performing these surgeries and collecting brains and blood and, you know, doing science. But it was also like a slumber party. It was like, I really felt like I had a community and a sisterhood within my lab. So that was also a really pivotal moment for me. I am currently the Welcoming and Inclusion Subcommittee co-chair, along with two other graduate students, Chris Ware and Georgia Bastos. And we first wanted to join this committee because obviously DEI issues, diversity, equity, inclusion issues are so important. And I felt that at the graduate level, this diversity wasn't seen as it is in the undergraduate level at Georgia State University, especially in our department. And it's super lacking. I come from a financially underprivileged background. I grew up with the poverty line my whole life. And I also identify as pansexual. And so, you know, I do have some sort of perspective coming into this of feeling like, you know, there needs to be help for people that aren't getting this, you know, extra step up just kind of in general. But at the same time, I want to raise up the voices of people who aren't represented as much at Georgia State. And so that's initially why I wanted to join this committee. So what I've been doing with the DEI is working to implement a buddy program, a mentor program for both undergrads and uh, graduate students in the Neuroscience Institute. And at the graduate level, this was super important for me because during my first year here, I felt, frankly, very alone. Halfway through my first year, COVID hit. So that wasn't fantastic. And I also just noticed that so many other people felt alone or confused. And not even just that, but small things like not knowing where to park, where is, you know, where's the best restaurants around here? Um, what are the good neighborhoods? What should you be doing during your first year of your PhD? Like what milestones are kind of there, but not really said out loud. And so I felt that we needed to create a mentorship program between older graduate students and incoming graduate students to help those people that may not have this kind of advantage of having a ton of experience in a lab or having a parent or a friend or a colleague that went through their PhD already, a lot of people don't have them. They kind of come in not knowing what they're doing. And up until now, there really hasn't been a ton of meaningful communication with the first years. So I really wanted to set up this peer-to-peer communication program and it's been going really well. So where do I think that the NI and the neuroscience community as a whole is going, um, especially relating to social issues, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. I firmly believe that we are headed in the right direction. We are increasing awareness about the lack of diversity, especially at the graduate, postdoc, and faculty level in neuroscience. I mean, 
anyone obviously can be a neuroscientist. And we have some incredible people in our department, in our graduate and undergraduate programs that really exemplify this. But as a whole, the voices of underrepresented folk are not as amplified as they should be. But I really am um, in awe of people and organizations like Dr. Kayla Singleton, who is one of the founders of Black and Neuro, who I absolutely love. And actually we're like Instagram friends and we like (laughs) comment on each other's pictures and stuff. She's absolutely incredible. And I feel that organizations like Black and Neuro are really starting to highlight these voices of Black neuroscientists and, you know, Indigenous neuroscientists. So these people that are there and exist and are amazing, but their voices aren't as amplified as, frankly, like a white male tenured faculty. I think that's really important to just keep highlighting these voices, encouraging people who are maybe starting college or even starting high school and are thinking about going into science and neuroscientists. But they don't see themselves represented. So they just are deterred from it and don't think that they can do it. And that's why like the DEI committee and ACSFN is so important to me. It's because we can actually go and interact with these younger folk at the middle school, high school level, and at the college level as well, and tell them, you know, you can do this and we will be there to support you. I think that it's truly the staff and the institution's responsibility to make these students feel welcomed, supported, and uplifted in this environment. And that kind of also leads me to another point is that Georgia State um, as a whole, and it's something that I've been very passionate about and leading the charge in along with Morgan Gomez and Amin Ghani, who are PhD students in my program as well. We feel that Georgia State is lacking in their financial support for PhD students. And even though the neuroscience program is one of the higher paid PhD programs throughout the university, it's still woefully lacking compared to other institutions in Atlanta and across the nation. And this has a huge impact on the diversity, equity, and inclusion of the NI department. So one of the biggest factors for people that are underrepresented and are maybe coming from more of an underprivileged background, if you are financially not supporting them in the way that they should be, then that bars them from coming and doing this training and actually completing a PhD. So I think that on a whole, that is changing and that we've seen so many graduate schools unionizing come together. There are institutions that are increasing their pay and support for graduate students along with other DEI initiatives. And Georgia State is doing this, but I think that as a whole, the field of neuroscience and GSU itself could be doing a little more. I think that since starting, It's been a general consensus for most students that our stipend is at times very difficult to live with, especially in a city that has been increasingly more expensive. This really came to a head four or five months ago 
when Amin Ghani, who is, as I said, another PhD candidate here at GSU, he wrote this beautiful, very eloquent letter talking about how GSU students in the NI specifically are, you know, not being supported as much as, let's say, neuroscience PhD students at Emory or at Georgia Tech even in the same city. One of the major things that we don't receive compared to those other institutions is health insurance coverage. Um, we receive, shall I say, our stipend doesn't cover our health insurance costs. And so at the end of the day, with all of the fees we have to pay, with all of the insurance charges that we have to pay, it's it eats away into our stipend to where we are barely scraping by. And we came together. So Amin and then Morgan and I, who are the presidents of the Neuroscience Graduate Student Association, we came together and brought our case to Dan Cox, who's the NI director. And it was received very well. And I am incredibly proud to say that we actually just recently secured a $3,000 emergency fund per student for all PhD students in the program. So, I mean, that's huge. It may not seem like a lot to some people, but that means the world to PhD students, truly. And the more we actually talked about it, you know, with Dan and with Dr. Ann Murphy, um, and we've actually had public forums as well within the graduate student program. And everyone's been extremely forthcoming, very transparent. And a lot of what the NI can do is quite limited. Um, and really, it ends up being a university issue. And so we are hoping to, in the near future, band together with other departments in the university, like the astronomy department, the physics department, the chemistry, the bio departments, and really bring our case to higher up faculty at the institution level. I am probably the most proud of my service track record and leadership track record in the department thus far in three years of being here. I just recently was awarded the Outstanding Graduate Student Service Award for 2022-2021. So that was extremely humbling and to be recognized in that way, especially as a third year, was I, I was incredibly grateful and very proud of everything that I've done and that I could be recognized for that. Leadership to me really doesn't have any age boundaries or role boundaries. And, you know, I've seen undergrads in this program be incredible leaders, even for graduate students and postdocs. So I think that first we need to recognize that a leader can look and be like anyone. I think that a leader is someone who wants to put time and effort and energy and passion into something. You don't have to be the loudest person to be a leader. You don't have to be the smartest person. You just, you have to be dedicated and you have to know how to, it sounds cliche, but lead by example. And I have led in multiple organizations like 
the Neuroscience Graduate Student Association. I'm currently the co-president. I am part of the Atlanta chapter for the Society of Neuroscience, and I lead the Brain Awareness Month and Brain Awareness initiatives in Atlanta across multiple institutions, as I mentioned. <laughs> um, I'm on the DEI committee and all of these things, you know, I literally started out doing these things just because I cared about them and just because it meant something to me. And I wanted to share my passion and some of my ideas with other people around me. And that kind of just naturally leads to you being a leader. I mean, it comes with experience, but if you want to do something, I say, like, truly reach out to someone that's connected, ask them if you can join and just go for it. See where it takes you. So as I mentioned, I'm going into my fourth year. So I have a couple of years left in my project, but after graduate school, I'm not entirely sure what I want to do. Um, and I think that's also important to say. So I do want to let other students feel a little more comfortable with the unknown. I do love wet lab research. I do love teaching, but I've also found that I really enjoy leadership outreach writing. So I've been really talking with some people and looking into science communication and science writing. I came into grad school and truly one of my biggest loves was writing. I said this to Dr. Forger when I first met her. <laughs> and it still holds true. I absolutely adore writing. I even write short stories and novels and stuff for fun um, in the past. So I think that is, as of right now, where I want to go, but I'm keeping the door open. I like to write dramas and suspense, not horror, but more thriller, mystery novels and short stories that's so nerdy <laughs> I published a few like prose and poetry things in high school in some magazines in Austin Texas but I've never like shared my work I would just do it to goof and release some tension if I had the chance to meet little Jen <laughs> I would first say girl pluck your eyebrows <laughs> <laughs> But I think in all realness, I would want to tell her that she can do it. And also that life will never stop throwing you curveballs. And it really is all about how you handle the curveballs because they will always come for everyone. You know, I would want to tell her, you got this. And even though you're terrible at algebra, you're going to be a scientist one day and you're going to do math for a living. <laughs> That's all for today. Thanks for listening. This has been Varied Voices in STEM. I'm Dr. Erica Tracy. I'm Charlize Williams. My name is Rora Dongo. And I'm M. Stacy. Remember, stay safe, stay curious, and share your stories.